Well, good day everyone. Today we're back in the book of James. If you could have James 1 open, we're starting at verse 19, working our way through to the end of chapter 2. Well, I'm sure that your visits to your doctor are just like mine. You walk in and sit down. How can I help you today? What's happening? You say this and that. They give a doctorly sort of hmm. Then they check your vital signs, your pulse, your blood pressure, your temperature. If these vital signs are wrong, then the doctor knows there's something wrong. If they're okay, well, they put up with your hypochondria for a few minutes more then tell you to take some Panadol and get some rest. Well, today we are all in the surgery and James is our doctor. And the condition that we're concerned about is a very serious spiritual condition called double-mindedness. Now, if you're wondering if you have this sickness or not, then just listen to the symptoms that James lists in his letter. First is instability in our Christian walk. 1 verse 8, he says, Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. Uh, an inability to keep a tight rein on your tongue. 1 verse 26. Lives polluted by the world. 1 verse 27. Favoritism. Treating some people as more important than others. The most common symptom is confusion. Thinking that you can be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. Now this spiritual condition, James says, has a deadly outcome. It, it makes people wander from the truth into error. And this finally results in death instead of life, hell instead of heaven. James 5, uh, 5 9, 19-20. I think it could be argued that double-mindedness is the main reason James wrote this letter. He knows how prevalent this spiritual condition is, and so he writes to give us wisdom from God so as to know how to not fall foul of this insidious spiritual condition. James is writing to Christians, to people to whom God has given new life, new birth. 1 verse 18 says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that's the gospel, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. The logic of James is unmistakable. It's simply this. If there is a new birth, a new life, there will be vital signs to that new life. It's a bit like a coin. You can't have a one-sided coin. You have one side, there's new birth, there will be another side, there will be vital signs of that, of that new life, that new birth. In this section of James, he tells us what they are and how to check for those vital signs. And his wisdom to us is keep checking your vital signs. Signs. I think James says that the three vital signs of the Christian life are one, ongoing repentance, uh, verses 19 to 25. Two, Unconditional love, 2, um, 1 to 13. And uh, 3, righteous actions, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. So let's think those through. Ongoing repentance. Now James doesn't use the word repentance, but he certainly shows us what it is and how it works. Look at verses 21 to 22. He says, Therefore get rid of all moral filth, and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, 
which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Repentance requires two things. Listening to God's word and acting on it, doing what it says. God's wisdom and our new life in Christ both come from God's word and so it's no surprise that James tells us to listen. And James is really big on listening. Uh, on listening. Verse 19, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Down in 2 verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Uh, God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. We need to listen at least twice as much as we speak. And there are no exceptions. Everyone, he says, must be quick to listen and slow to speak. Now James really drills into what good listening is. And it turns out the vital sign of good listening is ongoing repentance. So I wonder how are you at listening? Are you a good listener? We're not a culture of listeners anymore, are we? Our culture is now seems bent on being quick to speak, quick to reply at least, to have the witty come back to flick back an email, to shoot back a text, to maybe post a tweet. Well, let's let James teach us about listening to God. It is an essential remedy to double-mindedness. Listening is a serious business which involves humble acceptance of what God says, not just academic assent. Uh, verse 21. Therefore, he says, in other words, because you must be quick to listen, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Why? So that you can humbly accept another description of listening, the word planted in you, which can save you. God's wisdom comes from God through his word. The word of God, the gospel, when listened to and humbly accepted, can save. But if your life is full of moral filth and evil, the world, the word will not take root. Remember, Jesus said this exact thing in the parable of the sower. He said that the word is sown into our lives, but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, choke the word. So we must listen humbly and accept what it says. But it doesn't stop there. There's more to listening yet. We need to then do what it says, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We need to get rid of all the moral filth and evil in our lives. That's how wisdom works. Wisdom is knowledge that is put into practice. If you don't put it into practice, if all you do is hear it and feel pleased that you now know more than you did yesterday, then and that's where it stops, then you've actually deceived yourself. James would say you haven't actually listened at all. But there's another step to good listening. You need to continue, James says, in what you've begun to practice. Verse uh, 23. Sorry. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. 
But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. When you think about it, the whole purpose of looking in a mirror is to check yourself over. Is everything right? Is anything not right? You know, no unshaved whiskers, no smudged mascara, no unsqueezed pimples. It's just plain stupidity, isn't it? To go and look in the mirror, see a bunch of things you need to fix up, then walk away and forget it. What was the point? Well, the perfect law that brings freedom is the gospel. And James says that listening well is looking intently into the gospel and continuing in it, um, which means not forgetting what you have heard, but doing it. He's saying that God's word is a mirror. When we look into it, it exposes our faults. It helps us see God's wisdom for our lives, the truths we must accept about our lives and the, the rubbish uh, that we've got to get rid of. When you put that together, James says, James is saying that listening that leads to ongoing repentance is one of the vital signs of new spiritual life. And the result is that you will be blessed in what you do. You will find joy, deep-seated happiness in what you do. Your double-mindedness will be diminished. Your single-minded following of Jesus will have taken a giant step forward. So it's just worth stopping and asking yourself, is ongoing repentance evident in my life? If, it, if there isn't that vital sign in your life, James would say you're in trouble. What do you need to do then? Well, you need to go back to basics and start listening properly and putting into practice what you hear from God's word. So let me ask you, when you come to church, do you listen? Or is your mind on yesterday or tomorrow? Uh, when you come to church, do you listen? Uh, do you hear? But you're actually thinking about the person you want to catch up with after church. And so you forget. When you sit down and open up God's word or hear God's word spoken, are you like someone who comes to a mirror, sees, you know, kind of gets what's going on, but then walks away? Or are you someone who actually looks, listens, learns, changes? Repentance, ongoing repentance, it's a vital sign of the Christian life. Well, the second vital sign of new life in Christ is unconditional love. If you have new life from Christ, new life in Christ, then you should um, demonstrate the love of Christ. We need to check for the vital sign of unconditional love, Christ-like love. Just look at 2 verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favouritism. So he's talking to Christians, you and me. We must not show favouritism. On the other hand, that's what we shouldn't do, but he says we must keep the royal law, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbour as yourself. He's telling us what we shouldn't do and what we should do. What favouritism isn't. 
Favoritism literally means receiving the face. To receive the face is to make judgments about people based on external appearance. And Jane gives the example of someone who comes to church, they look impressive, gold ring, fine clothes, they walk into church, but they're followed in by a man who is homeless, dirty, bedraggled. There's a bit of an odour. James says if you show favour to the impressive man and disfavour to the poor man, then he says you're showing favouritism. Look what he says. You have become judges with evil thoughts, 2 verse 4. 2 verse 9, if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The cause of favouritism is that you are not, in the words of 127, keeping yourself unpolluted by the world. I'm not sure what you think of when you think of being polluted by the world. You may think of sexual immorality, murder, greed, all those really nasty things, but would you, would you naturally think of favouritism? James really catches us by surprise. But I think he's right on the money. See, of all the temptations in life, of all the easiest sins to fall into, I would say favouritism is it. After all, it's the way the world works. It's the way our culture works. What's the biggest social media phenomena called? Facebook. What does it allow you to do? It allows you to give an impression that's not really what's going on at home. It's not all bad, but it certainly allows that. Almost everything in our world these days is designed to give an impression, to present a facade, which actually hides the reality. I think our sinful natures push us in this direction. You know, are there people at church with whom you would or would not like to you know, have a selfie. Are you ever talking to someone and then someone else more important walks in? From that point on, the person you're talking to no longer holds your attention. I don't know how often I've been guilty of that. When impressive, beautiful people, wealthy people in designer clothes, local dignitaries catch our eye and we favour them because of it, we are receiving the face we're saying they are more valuable because they made a great impression. When the unimpressive people, annoying people, poorly dressed people, smelly people catch our eyes so that we treat them unfavourably, we're receiving the face. We're saying they are of less worth because of their appearance. Showing favouritism, partiality. Uh, James says it's evil. You are a law-breaking sinner, verse 11. You are not showing mercy and so deserve no mercy from God on Judgment Day, verse 13. Wow. Showing favouritism is evil? It's breaking the whole law? Really? Well, James says, yes, it is. Now, sometimes I think we think that God's law is like doing the HSC like our um, HSC kids at the moment. We, you know, you sit down at a at a maths paper, say, and there are ten questions, and on top of the page it says, "Attempt any six. Do you think following God's commands is like that? That if you have a fair crack at six of them, when you're doing okay, 
Well, James says it's not like that. No, the more is law like is is sorry, the law is more like the tire on your car or the windscreen on your car. Get a flat tire, we don't say, well, my tire's only flat on the bottom. Or my windscreen is only cracked on one side. No, the whole tire is flat. It needs fixing, the whole windscreen is broken, it needs replacing. But that leaves us in a bit of a quandary, doesn't it? Okay, James, so we've all broken all of the law. Thanks for pointing that out. Now I feel worse than I did before. But what do we do about it? Well, Jesus did say that one law encapsulates all the rest. That is, if you are keeping this one law, then all the others will kind of fall into line. Matthew 22, a teacher asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, verse 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. All the law, see, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. It is called the royal law, I think, for two reasons. One, it's the king of the laws. Follow this law and all the others kind of fall into line. And second, it is the law that our King Jesus Christ kept, kept it to a T. He literally gave his all to keep this law. Life as a follower of Jesus takes on new clarity if this becomes our Law for life, our manner of relating to one another. See, we're no longer controlled by the, let's face it, duplicitous, appalling values of the world that suggest that a person's worth comes from their appearance, from what they're wearing, or how much they own. One of the vital signs that God's word, God's wisdom, God's perfect law has taken root in your heart is that if you love unconditionally. How do we do that? Let's be honest, it's it's hard, isn't it? We all have a bent towards favouritism. We all have our favourites. Well, James says that we simply must listen to and apply God's word. Look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised Those who love him? See, how can it be wise or right or good if we take on the world's values that prefer the wealthy when our God warns against pursuing wealth? When um, the Bible says in several places that God doesn't call the wise or the wealthy, he, he calls the foolish, the poor, the weak. How can it be right that we pursue wealth and position when our Saviour himself gave up the status of the King of Heaven to become a pauper and die a humiliating death. Jesus demonstrated unconditional love. And unconditional love takes no account of the appearance of someone, and so it is a vital sign that the life of Christ himself is in us, because that is what he was like. 
James says, check and keep checking for the vital sign of unconditional love. And when you get it wrong, listen. Go back again to God's perfect law and find the freedom to repent of the evil of favouritism. Well, the third vital sign is righteous action. I said at the start to use the analogy of a coin. The Christian life is like a coin. There is no such thing as a one-sided coin. There's always the other side. So if the word is implanted, one side, there will be growth, other side. If there is a root, there will be fruit. If there is humble listening, there will be repentance, ongoing repentance. If there is new life from Christ, there will be love like Christ. Now, James says, if there is living faith, there will be righteous action. But he pushes it a bit further because he doesn't want us to be double-minded, be deceived. He says that if there are no righteous actions, no deeds, no evident righteousness, then there is no faith. It's dead. You will not be saved. Now, we stand firm and strong on the truth of justification by faith alone. So when we read this passage and say like verse 24, it really catches our attention. Verse 24 says, you see that a person is considered righteous by, by what they do and not by faith alone. Go, whoa, what, what's James saying? Well, justification by faith is one of those two-sided coins of Christianity. One side, you have the declaration by God about faith. We are declared righteous because of our faith in Christ. But on the other side, you have the demonstration of that faith. Verse 18 says, I will show you my faith. James is simply pointing out that you simply can't have one without the other. It's a two, Faith's a two-sided coin. One side, you have the cause of salvation. Faith alone in Christ alone. On the other side, you have the consequence of faith. Righteous actions, deeds, good works. Verse 21, he says, you see this, you see his faith, that's talking about Abraham, literally collaborated or synergized with his faith so that, uh, with his works, so that his faith was completed by his works. That is why he says, you see, you see, because you can literally see the consequence of faith if it is living. James says that you can't have one without the other. Another analogy that I read of is obstetrics and paediatrics. Obstetrics is about the start of life. James says that the start of faith, the new birth, is when the word is implanted in our hearts and starts to grow. That's chapter one, obstetrics. Here in chapter two, he's talking about paediatrics, the growth, the development of this new life after birth. Again, you can't have one without the other. If there is a birth, there will be growth and development of that life. James says that we must not be double-minded about this. The Christian life is a two-sided coin. You can't have one without the other. To think that belief is enough, he says, is to have a demonic belief. The demons believe in God so much so they shudder, but they reject the truth. 
They know about God in favour of continuing rebellion. James says the vital sign that you need to check for, for a real and living faith, is righteous action, righteous deeds that are the product of faith. James says in verse 20, you are just plain foolish to think otherwise. So James does what Paul does when he wants to teach us truth about real faith. He takes us to the faith of Abraham and also the faith of Rahab. Abraham was a man in whom God had planted his word. He he made promises to Abraham. He spoke to him. Now Abraham, like us, got an awful lot wrong in his life. But nevertheless, he persisted in listening to God and in trusting God. The consequence of his faith was that he became more and more single-minded. So single-minded, in fact, that he obeyed God's extraordinary command to sacrifice his son Isaac. The fruit of Abraham's faith in God's implanted word was the righteous action of single-mindedly obeying God, whatever the cost. The consequence was that Abraham acted righteously and that Abraham was blessed by God. God provided a sacrificial lamb. His son did not die. And Abraham himself became the father of many nations, not just one son. Rahab's another great illustration. Rahab was a prostitute. Ahab, uh, Abraham sorry, was a wealthy, uh, impressive man. Rahab is a... a uh, Poor, wretched prostitute. But she had heard about the God of Israel. She believed in him. She said that to the spies that she helped, the Lord your God is the God of heaven above and on the earth below. That simple truth took root in her heart. And so she single-mindedly turned away from her old life and regardless of the cost, helped the spies of Israel, the people of her living God. James finishes this section with the one line that sums up what he's been saying. Something so self-evidently true that we wonder how we could ever think otherwise. Verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. A dead faith cannot save. If we fool ourselves with all kinds of double-minded excuses as to why I don't have to act righteously, We're already wandering from the truth. We're on the highway that leads to death. James says, check your vital signs. If you cannot find righteous fruit growing in your life, then there's no root. Your faith is dead. Go back to the word of God. Humbly accept it and ask God to forgive your sin and grant you new life. Friends, we live in a treacherous world and our hearts are just as treacherous. Our hearts are deceitful above all things. We, we don't even understand them ourselves. James wants to make sure that we're not self-deceived or double-minded. How do we do that? Well, check the vital signs. Ongoing repentance, unconditional love and righteous actions springing from faith. If you find them in your life, then you're greatly blessed. Please keep at it. Grow in single-minded faith like Abraham and Rahab. If you don't find these three vital signs, 
You're already in trouble. Stop. Listen intently and humbly to God's word and be sure to put into practice whatever it is that you hear from him. Let's pray. Lord God, you say in your word that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So we're all sinners. We all fail. But if we confess our sins, you are humble. Now you are faithful and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit that helps us understand and writes it on our heart. Thank you for your unconditional love. We pray that you'll help us not to just hear your word, but to listen intently, not forget it, put it into practice. Please grow us in us a living faith and in our lives righteous deeds that glorify you, that shine like a beacon into our dark world and that bring blessing into our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.